0: This is a crowd podcast. Truman, Darcy. Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, a Winchell, Joe DiMaggio.
1: Oh, I've been looking forward to this one, whoa, whoa, Joe DiMaggio. Whoa.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode seven of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that zippity doo does through post war history and the reasons why the world is the way it is today. All done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I'm Katie Puckrick, and this is Tom Fordyce, and Tom. As always, our minds are fertile and waiting <laughs> to be grown and bloomed upon by the information that will be imparted today.
1: It takes us all over the place, this podcast, Katie, doesn't it? This is our first one today where we mentioned sport and a man, Joe DiMaggio, a man who I first heard of in the lyrics of a Simon and Garfunkel song.
0: Wait a minute. I'm getting the sense, Tom, that you are listen to quite a lot of music throughout your life because all of your information seems to come from pop songs.
1: It does, unfortunately. And I had no idea who Joe DiMaggio was or why you know, a nation would turn its lonely eyes to him.
0: Woo, woo, woo. Exactly. It, is that what happened in Mrs. Robinson? Is That's that what happens.
1: Song? How about you as a kid growing up? Okay, America. so
0: as a kid growing up, um, my first awareness of Joe DiMaggio, I lived in the Midwest in South Bend, Indiana for four years. And I remember Joe DiMaggio was an older gray-haired gentleman with a long chimpy looking face he looked like he was maybe uh, a face carved uh you know just in standby from Mount Rushmore and he was the Mr. Coffee salesman so there was Ah. a at-home coffee percolator and Joe DiMaggio was very keen for all of America to get hooked in and get jacked up on the the goods that Mr. Coffee produced but I think there's probably more to him than that.
1: Well, we have someone, Katie, as always, who is going to fill in the massive blanks between our knowledge. And this week, that is Josh Chetwynd. He's written about baseball. He's played baseball. He's talked about it. Uh, you are Mr. Baseball, Josh, aren't
2: you? I would love to get that title. I don't think I'm deserving of it. <laughs> but I certainly know quite a bit about Joe DiMaggio and his role that he played not only in baseball, but in American culture.
1: Uh, Okay, so first of all, Katie, I'm going DiMaggio now, not DiMaggio, which I was going for before. Josh, what does he look like? Why is he so huge in American baseball and thus in American culture?
2: Well, he was a, a unique athlete for his time. He started in the major leagues, which is the highest level of baseball in the United States, in 1936. And he was what they call in baseball. There's actually a term of art for the type of player he was. He was what was called a five-tool player. That meant that he could hit for average, which make, meant making contact, hit for power, hitting the home runs, which is the big American activity of uh, the equivalent of a six in, in cricket. He could throw, he could run, and he could also play defense. And so. He was sort of a, an amazing all-around athlete when he hit the major leagues, but what really made him stand out and the reason why he was such a cultural icon was that he happened to play for the right team, which was the New York Yankees. And wherever you live in the world, you've probably heard of the New York Yankees or at least seen the hat. It is it is sort of a, a cultural totem of sorts. So you're looking at the best player on the best team in the biggest city in the United States during that period.
0: How did Joe DiMaggio even come to baseball to begin with because we've been talking about him coming from an immigrant family and his dad was a fisherman and his dad's hope was that the, the boys would all carry on the family business. How did he get into baseball?
2: Yeah, his dad did not like the fact that Joe or his brothers really played baseball. I think you're right on point, Katie, and that uh, um, this was a family that really believed in the hard work and the heavy graft of, of fishing, which is an early morning activity, really difficult work. But his brothers had gotten into it, his older brothers. And uh, his, one of his brothers was playing for this team, the San Francisco Seals. And it was at uh, the end of the season in the early 30s where he convinced the manager, a guy named Lefty O'Doul, who was a famous player in his own right that they needed to bring in their little their little brother Joe to play shortstop <laughs> which was a very athletic position uh, at the end of the season. He came in, he did pretty well and then the next season he was one of the best players in that league. We talked about the 56 game hitting streak which was remarkable at the major league level. He actually had a 61 game hitting streak in the Pacific Coast League. So his father ended up coming around to it because he saw the success he had. I mean, he was making $25,000 which is, you know, uh, worth hundreds of thousands dollars in current times. Uh, He actually deserved to make more than what he made. He was holding out uh, early in his career to get a $40,000 contract. The owner of the Yankees refused to, and he said, you know, baseball's in my blood. I'm willing to take the less money. So uh, whatever the amount was, it was still quite a bit more than what you're going to make going out on the fishing boat.
0: I'm interested, Josh, uh, about baseball itself. Why is baseball considered such an iconic American sport I mean there's that expression as American as mom baseball and apple pie
2: yeah well it's it's america's pastime and it was a sport that really started at a time when america was blooming it started at the end of the 19th century when america was starting to become a dominant world power and it was a sport that they believed although it really does come from a lot of antecedents particularly from from british sports but they believed it was a sport they created so unlike the other big sports of the time like say boxing or horse racing which had tremendous antecedents around the world baseball felt uniquely american and that's the reason why it's so important to the culture particularly during this period in the period in which joe dimaggio really ascended
1: were there big baseball heroes before joe was like babe ruth that previous generation so if they were what is it about joe that makes him stand out that gives him that hold
2: Right on with, with Babe Ruth being the great hero that preceded him. And what's so most interesting to me about Joe DiMaggio is that he had many different contrasting figures in his life that really helped make him the figure that he was. And one of them was Babe Ruth. Now, Babe Ruth was a very different type of player from Joe DiMaggio from a different era, right? He was the roaring 20s when he was at his height and, and when he was such a star. And he was a, a, a large set fellow, loved to eat hot dogs, loved to smoke cigars, loved to drink, loved <laughs> to <laughs> and as a result, he represented that era of just sort of exciting, roaring 20s. And he had a lot of home runs. You now move ahead and Joe DiMaggio sort of replaced him. He was one of those contrasting figures to DiMaggio. And DiMaggio was quiet. He went about his business. He was a serious man. He took the sport seriously. He was a, a very heavy smoker, but never let anyone see that. He was a guy with ulcers and insomnia, never let anyone see that. To him, what was so important was being doing his job every day, being the best he could be. So he was very different from Ruth. The other thing that he was very different from Ruth uh, from was uh, the fact that he had an ethnic background. He was uh, the son of an Italian fisherman, DiMaggio was. Ruth, there were some questions about ethnicity, but was considered sort of a, more of an American figure as opposed to an ethnic figure. And that was appropriate with DiMaggio because he sort of ushered in that area of really the melting pot of America, which was such a huge terminology and context. Concept in America at that time, that everybody brings their best to America. And DiMaggio was bringing his Italian ethnicity to the sport and to sort of the American landscape.
0: One thing that I think is very interesting is uh, in the middle of him being a, a really big baseball star, he actually decides to go into the military. It's World War II, and uh, he does his bit by signing up. Uh, what did he actually do when he was in the military?
2: Well, well, that wasn't uncommon, to be quite honest. Um, all the great baseball stars did that. It was sort of a part of, of the uh, American tradition for that era. This was called The Greatest Generation for this very type of reason, because not only him, uh, you know, actors like Jimmy Stewart went into the military, and one of the other great foils, to Joe DiMaggio was a player by the name of Ted Williams, who played in a competing town, Boston, for the Boston Red Sox, was also a great player. And uh, unlike... DiMaggio, uh, Ted Williams actually had a very heroic uh, military experience, he was a fighter pilot. DiMaggio's military experience wasn't quite as uh, memorable as that. He wasn't necessarily sort of this big war hero the way some of the other big celebrities who went over, yet he did do his bit, and you're, you're right, in that he was a guy who, like everyone else in that period, felt that that was your civic duty as an American.
0: I did read that uh, he was assigned to be a PE teacher <laughs> when yeah, he was cushy uh, number, uh, uh, yeah, so at a few bases, so he was like in charge of physical education. Um, there was just another thing that I wanted to kind of follow through with this question, which was, um one thing that I found really interesting and disconcerting was while DiMaggio was serving his country in World War II, his parents were classed as enemy aliens because they were were Italian. They weren't allowed to travel outside their neighborhood. His father's fishing boat was seized. I mean, do you have any insight as to uh, how Joe coped with that dissonance?
2: Yeah. I mean, this wasn't uncommon for this era. obviously. Uh, America is a spot in its history with uh, the internment camps for Japanese. And you also had the fact that Italians were also looked down upon as were uh, Germans. And my expectation with Joe, he was a very private individual. I mean, that really is one thing that really shows who he was, is that he wouldn't have complained ever publicly for that sort of action. It was outside of his belief of what an American should be, is that you get the cards that you're dealt, you do the best that you can, and then you hope that the results work out. And uh, it's interesting, you know, he had two brothers, uh, Vince DiMaggio and, and Dom DiMaggio, he had other uh, uh, siblings as well too, but both of those brothers actually played in the major leagues, neither of whom were nearly as good as Joe, both of whom had much happier lives than Joe. So whether whatever was going on during that period and whatever went on in his life, he always internalized it, and he paid the price for that.
1: So there's another major figure in Billy Joel's song, Katie, who comes up in about three or four lines time, Marilyn Monroe, who's going to play a huge part in Joe's life, almost his obsession. But before we get to that, Josh, can you paint a picture? I want to imagine what Joe DiMaggio looks like when he's got the bat in his hand and he's walking out at Yankee Stadium. Like His, his, his face, his build, the reaction from the stands...
2: He, he he was, as I mentioned before, very athletic. He was long-limbed. What was interesting about him is he batted from the right side of the plate, so hitters either hit from the right or the left-hand side. Historically, anyone who watches baseball will tell you that the most beautiful swings when you swing the bat to hit the ball are for batters who actually bat on the left side of the plate. It's just sort of, I guess, the natural swing. Right-handed hitters don't have as pretty a swing. Joe DiMaggio was an exception to that rule. He had a very powerful yet smooth swing. uh, And it was very consistent. Uh, One of the things that he was most known for on the baseball field was that in 1941, he got a hit in 56 consecutive games.
1: Wow, and what sort of reaction would he have got around Yankee Stadium? So Yankee Stadium has got used to the the myths and the magic of Babe Ruth. And then they've got this great hero, a different sort of hero. Did they take him to their heart straight away? Would there have been, when he walks out to bat, is there a a, a noticeable change in the atmosphere in the Yankee Stadium?
2: Well, it was interesting when he first came up uh, to the major leagues in 1936, he had had a a great minor league history. He'd played in the Pacific Coast League uh, in his hometown of San Francisco for the San Francisco Seals and done tremendously well. You move over to New York to the the big leagues, literally and figuratively, and the initial attitude was a little bit of reticence because he wasn't Babe Ruth. And also people had to get their heads around the ethnicity piece, I, I believe, to begin with. That said, once he was taken in the hearts of Yankees fans, Yankees fans are tremendously loyal. And the amount of excitement, the amount of energy in Yankee Stadium for their biggest star on a team that was consistently a winner uh, was raucous. I mean, it was loud, it was exciting. I mean, baseball fans were considered, you know, sort of a rough and tumble type of fans. It's not like going to a a football match in the UK. There's not singing, but there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of clapping and there is a lot of energy.
0: I want to know, do you think that Joe DiMaggio would have been on Marilyn Monroe's uh, horizon? Would she have known who he was? Would she have been aware of him, do you think, before she met him?
2: For sure. I mean, you know, Tom, you mentioned, uh, of course, the Simon and Garfunkel song, Mrs. Robinson, obviously the Billy Joel song. There was a song at the time about him called Jolten Joe DiMaggio, (laughs) and it was sort of a, a prominent song. I mean, he was an iconic figure. I mean, baseball was the center of the sporting universe and there is no doubt that marilyn monroe would have known uh, who he was uh, beforehand uh, would have considered him sort of a a catch from a a social standpoint it wasn't that he was not a handsome man he certainly wasn't the most dashing of baseball players uh, but he was such an important figure and so again representative of that culture of the hard work of uh, the great sporting athlete of one of the great stories about him was that near the end of his career, someone asked him, he had had some injuries, and someone had asked him, why do you always play so hard? You never have a day when you're down. Baseball season's a long season. It starts in April, goes all the way into the fall. And he said, because there's always the possibility there's a kid out there who's come to the game and see me for the first time, and I want them to see me at my best. Uh, And that, that was a really American concept. And so I'm sure that Marilyn Monroe knew that story, even that one, which was so famous uh, and and was sort of drawn to him for those type of reasons.
1: They're only married for nine months, Katie, aren't they? This is this strange thing, this obsession that defines Joe DiMaggio's second part of his life. They're married for nine months and then they split
0: yeah, but you're rushing us into the marriage and the split. I want to know, come on, let's milk this sucker. I want to know how they got how do they even meet each other? did Did he see her and think she is a cat? She's a little bit of arm candy? Yeah. I mean,
2: I think that he was in, you know, he had the infatuation with him as every American did during that period. I mean, she was the exemplar of beauty in America. and, Power couples come together. We have so many examples of power couples that come together because they have both ascended to the top of their professions and atop of really the, the, the celebrity world. Uh, and they, they find each other and because they both know, hey, look, we were so great, maybe we could be great together, uh, there is no doubt and this is seen throughout Joe DiMaggio's life, that that even though they were married for such a short amount of time, that she was the love of his life. He had been married previously. Uh, He had one child uh, who ended up living uh, not a full life. Very sad story. Often the children of celebrities have a difficult time. Uh, and ironically, that that son that uh, Joe DiMaggio had actually was very close to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, for all her glitz, uh, was known to be a very warm person to the people around her. And so, I think that uh, the issue and and the tension in that relationship was the fact that she loved the adulation. There was a story about when the two were together in front of a large crowd and Marilyn turns to Joe DiMaggio and said, have you ever heard so much love? And he sort of cocked his head and said, yeah, you know, I played in Yankee Stadium. (laughs) So there's no doubt uh, that he was experienced in the world that Marilyn Monroe trafficked, but he didn't love that. He didn't love the attention. And that was the tension in the relationship, that he wanted the two of them to go away and to be away from the crowds. And Marilyn Monroe lived off of that type of energy.
0: Well, also, uh, he was at the end of his baseball career and she was in ascendance in her career. So that would have just been clipping her wings. And I think I get the idea that he would have been happy for her to just put that pinafore on and, you know, whip up a meatloaf in the kitchen. And that's not where her head was at.
2: Well, we talk about Joe DiMaggio being so reflective of that American culture, and that's a side of it, too. It's not just the hard work. It's not just about sort of pushing down all your difficulties and never letting them see you sweat. But it was also that american you know there's a pot roast in every oven your wife wears you know the pretty apron is there waiting for you he was part of that part of americana which uh, has not aged well of course uh, but certainly created another tension in that relationship
1: it sounds as well katie like he was jealous
2: oh
0: gosh the story of,
1: of when marilyn's filming that famous scene from the seven year itch
0: over, oh, or she's a, over the subway grate. Over the
1: subway grate. So there's a director, Billy Wilde, and he knows he knows that we'll still be talking about that scene in 50, 60, 70 years' time. But for Joe, as you say, quite prurient, quite old-fashioned, he's just thinking, that's my wife.
0: Well, there's a crowd
1: it, of people looking at my wife's knickers.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, he's totally controlling, isn't he? And um, to me, like, okay, you have this sort of feelings, but her job is is to be an actress. She's a film star. She's not storming on to the the baseball field and giving him notes on how to hit a ball,
2: is he? (laughs) No. I mean, I don't think he was jealous of her adulation as much as this idea that he didn't want to share her as much. I think that if he had his choice, he would have spirited her away and they would have been living that quiet life. So I don't think it was as much that, he was uncomfortable with her success as much as he wanted her to change for him. And that's a difficult thing to ask for, the biggest superstar in the world at that time.
0: Well, it makes no sense to me because he's presumably attracted to her because she is all of those things and she's the biggest superstar in the world. She has those qualities and she has that power. And he's saying, oh, yeah, don't do that anymore. I I hear that he was also physically abusive with her.
2: That I don't know about. I mean, I I don't know whether that's conjecture or or, or certainty. Perhaps it wouldn't surprise me, to be quite honest. He was a person who was known for a really sharp temper throughout his life. Uh, He would be dismissive of people. It wouldn't surprise me that uh, he would live in a bubble and that if people didn't conform to what he needed, uh, he would act out in a a very tragic and, and, and to be honest, brutal way. And it's,
1: it's tragic the way that it all ends, Katie, isn't it? When Marilyn Monroe dies... And they're not married at this point. They haven't been married for years. But he almost takes control of the situation. He's the one who goes and gets her body. Joe DiMaggio is the one who decides that the Kennedys, for example, aren't coming to the funeral, that Frank Sinatra is not coming to a funeral.
0: Yeah, like he's basically cutting out the baddens. He's from cutting her life. out the
1: glamour and the bits he doesn't like. Right. And then he puts six red roses on her grave three times a week for 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's almost like uh, he never he never really stopped holding a torch for her. They did reconcile. Is there a suspicion that they reconciled right before her death?
2: Yeah, I believe that's true. And uh, Katie, you mentioned that he was in love with her because she was a star, but I actually think it was vastly deeper than that. I oh, think yeah? that there was there was an emotional connection there. There was a certain love. But there was also a possessive love, um, which is not a healthy type of love, where he always felt that she was his and even after they were gone uh, as a couple, that never changed. So, uh, not necessarily healthy, but obviously there was some some sentiment there that that is sweet uh, that sort of went along with a lot of the, the darker aspects of that relationship.
1: I get a feeling, Katie, when we look at Billy's lyrics for "We Didn't Start the Fire," that mm. he loves his baseball. Because Brooklyn's Got a Winning Team pops up. California Baseball pops up. Is he a Mets fan? Is he a New York Mets fan, Billy Joel?
2: Uh, He's certainly a New Yorker. And what people... I mean, may not realize, particularly during this period uh, of Joe DiMaggio, was that New York was the center of the baseball universe. During this period, you had the New York Yankees, you had the Brooklyn Dodgers, you had uh, the New York Giants, which were three of the biggest teams. And so New York was that that central part. And any kid growing up in New York, whether it was Billy Joel, uh, Billy Crystal, the famous comedian, there's so many examples of people from this era, baseball was part of who they were playing stickball, which was a variation of baseball that was played on the streets where you'd use a stick and a smaller ball and cars would be bases where you'd run to. (laughs) It was part of growing up in New York. Uh, It's a huge part of the nostalgia for anyone. So it's not surprising uh, that for Billy Joel, this was an important part of who he was.
0: Ooh, Tom, if you don't mind, I need a moment. So it's just as well, it's time for a commercial break. Sports stars, they're like superheroes.
1: But they're actually real, which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant, Payne Stewart, Flo jo, Phil Hughes, Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them, and sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>
0: Got that out of the way. Let's get back into some more fire. You mentioned comedian Billy Crystal. Uh, Billy had a funny, sort of funny, in retrospect, experience with Joe DiMaggio. Do you know about this story where uh, (gasps) Joe, Joe apparently punched him in the stomach because Billy's job was to introduce Joe, and he didn't say the thing, the king of pop, the king of rock and roll thing, the- the um,
2: Greatest living ball player. The,
0: yeah, yes. yeah. So um, what, I'm just mangling the story, but do you know that story?
2: Well, I certainly know about the greatest living ball player and that Sorbacay, which is uh, a really huge part of him. And I think one of the more telling stories. So in 1969, a number of sports writers dubbed Joe DiMaggio the greatest living ball player. And this was so vitally important to Joe DiMaggio and to how he saw himself. It's very easily arguable that he was not the greatest living ball player in 1969. Willie Mays had already had most of his career. Ted Williams, arguably, was as good a player during Joe DiMaggio's era. And yet, in order for him to play in an old-timers game, so you know all the old guys come together and they get out onto the field, he required that he be called the greatest living player. Uh, and to me, all of it makes sense because I think that Joe DiMaggio was an incredibly claustrophobic person. He had this reputation. He needed to hold on to it. And anything that would push away from the reputation that he was this great player who played the game right, who was the paradigm of what was meant to be right in baseball, uh, would make him sick. It would sort of push the walls in closer to him. And so he would get deeply agitated. And the story you told about Billy Crystal speaks to that. Deeply agitated if anyone was to try, was to try and intrude on that reputation.
0: Yeah. And I, I just want to sort of phrase it more clearly. So apparently the story goes that Billy Crystal's job was to introduce Joe DiMaggio. I think it was probably at one of these old-timer games. And he said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Joe DiMaggio. Joe came out, did the wave, and then later uh, in the dugout just walked up to Billy Crystal and punched him. In the gut, and he just hissed under his breath, greatest living ball player,
2: Joe DiMaggio. So at least
0: he was aware of branding, right? <laughs>
2: so, I mean, but that all makes sense, right? And, and it's interesting. How I sort of talk about him as representative, at least in terms of the way people saw the perfect American, right? You know, ethnic came from, you know, overseas, entered the melting pot, did the most American of things, did everything right, never complained, was, you know, the team player. And yet he also speaks. To America today, right? The ego, the need to feel wanted, the posse around him. Uh, so in a way, he's a bit of a dichotomy and a bit of a person who straddles both the America today and the America of that era.
1: How does he cope with that period, Josh? And this is a problem for a lot of extremely famous sports people. How does he cope with that period where baseball comes to an end People still know him. People still bother him in the street and come around to his restaurant or they know where his house is in San Francisco. And he hates all that. How does he deal with that period? Because Katie and I, we read a piece, didn't we, by Gay the great American sports writer, um, quite a famous piece about Joe DiMaggio called The Silent Season of the Hero. And it's sort of about that aftermath, Katie, isn't it? And there's a lot of weird things with that piece. You can tell it's written by a man in a particular era.
0: Yeah, it's very dated uh, gender and, you know, morality outlook.
1: There's a lot of stuff about the men in it and the women are invisible. invisible. Yeah. But the reason why I found that so interesting, Josh, was like, what do you do when you've had that fame and then you retire at 37 and the rest of your life is defined by the first half of it?
2: Yeah, Uh, two things to say. First, I think an interesting point about him retiring at 37, which was that he probably retired a little early, and he always said that the number he remembered the most was 263, which was his batting average in his final year, which was subpar compared to the rest of his career. He chose to retire early because he was unwilling to go on not being the great Joe DiMaggio. He couldn't be a less than great, which is very differential from most other players. But to your broader point, I think one of the great ironies of Joe DiMaggio is he had two brothers, as I mentioned, who played in the major leagues, Vince DiMaggio and Dom DiMaggio. Neither of them anywhere as close both of whom had much happier lives after baseball. Why? So the great one didn't have the happy life. Vince was like kind of a handyman. He'd never really made any money, but he'd whistle everywhere he went. He was always a pretty generally (laughs) jovial guy. Dom DiMaggio, whose nickname was the little professor and played for the Boston Red Sox for a large portion of his career, was a pretty good player. Again, nowhere near Joe DiMaggio, but became a really astute businessman. He ended up having a polyurethane business that was very successful and was very fulfilled by that. And there's a certain tragedy that the one who was great at baseball afterwards was never happy. He did have pretty big jobs. He was on boards of directors. As Katie mentioned, he did the Mr. Coffee commercials, which he was iconic <laughs> for, uh, where he would have his cu- cup of Joe. Joe would have his cup of Joe in the morning. Uh, and so he was still very well known. And again, though, he couldn't let go of the persona of being the baseball player. And the whole idea of the greatest living ball player was so essential to him be able to stick to the past. And that is exactly where you come from when we're talking about the Mrs. Robinson song, Where Have You Gone, Joe DiMaggio? That line really speaks to the nostalgia that was so representative of what Joe DiMaggio was and what Joe DiMaggio himself clinged to.
1: I was going to ask Josh if every kid growing up in America at that point wanted to be Joe DiMaggio. And then that made me wonder if he was a hero to all kids. Is he a hero to to black kids growing up in America? Because this is the time where Jackie Robinson, 1947, becomes the first black player in Major League Baseball and he's at the Brooklyn Dodgers. So would there have been a split with those kids as to who was their hero?
2: I mean, I, I think as a person, you know, who's played sports, you sort of seek out heroes who are most similar to you. Often, so you know, I was a catcher who was really slow uh, and really <laughs> sort of overachieved. So Yogi Berra was would have been my sort of hero if that era, as opposed to Joe DiMaggio, who had skills that I could never attain. <laughs> so I, I think that that probably affects it. But I think that. Uh, Anyone who plays sports, anyone who's a kid who loves sports, they will respect talent Uh, and you would have liked him. He was a hard player not to like in terms of what he did on the field because he didn't give you any reason to dislike him. He wouldn't complain. He... Always did everything mentally right in the game. That is as much mental as it is physical to be able to do that, to come out every day knowing the pressure that you need to get a hit. And so I think for that reason, he was a guy who uh, was universally respected for his baseball acumen and ability.
1: There's a picture of, of Joe DiMaggio Katie, um, which seems to sum him up, where he's in his Yankees cap. And like Josh says, you see Yankees caps all around the world now. You'll see them in London, you'll see them in Beijing, you'll see them in moscow in in berlin but he's got that baggy baseball vest on and there's something about his stance he's got his left hand on his hip and his right elbow is just leaning on the fence and it's that easy air
0: well there's a certain uh, sense of ownership i mean he's large and in charge and that's his domain yeah he's just got an ease he doesn't really have anything to prove that's what i'm that's the sense i'm getting from him
2: He presented a quiet confidence. I think that that's what people saw in him. But again, as I mentioned at the start, he had bouts of insomnia. Um, He uh, was a massive smoker. I mean, he smoked packs and packs a day. He had ulcers so here was a guy who gave that impression but underneath there was a rage and i think you find that actually in a lot of successful people whether it's sports or otherwise that there has to be a drive within them all those people who seem easy there are examples of players who are like that certainly but most of them have to have there's something inside of them that pushes them forward that propels them to success you see that in actors you see that in all types of politicians uh, and i think joe dimaggio was no different he was a person who inside had a lot of anger, fire and drive, even if outside uh, he looked like there was a quiet ease. So,
0: Josh, if you had to sum up Joe DiMaggio's legacy, how would you do it?
2: Joe DiMaggio will be remembered as one of the great players. So if you're a baseball fan, he's part of that Uh, pantheon of players that you need to know. But he's more than that. He was an American icon at a period of American ascendancy. He was a person who uh, represented, at least outwardly, all that was supposedly good about Americans during what was a, a period where America felt very proud and very strong. And I think that whether he was the representative of that or whether he was the embodiment or whether his actions made other people act that way Uh, he is such an important figure for that middle period of american history in the 20th century
1: beautifully done perfect josh thank you so much and a forever forward now katie i'm going to talk about joe dimaggio
0: yes what were you saying before DiMaggio. yeah it's dimaggio keep it soft keep it (laughs) jishy Josh, thank you so much. I feel much smarter in this area. You filled in a blank spot for me.
2: Uh, Katie, Tom, it was a pleasure. I, uh, I really love this concept for the podcast and I wish you the best of luck getting through all of the famous people and things that happened in that
1: song. Right, Katie, it's the part of the podcast where you and me look at each other and go, did Billy do a good thing
0: here? Yeah, we're checking Billy's work. We're assessing it in context. Well, I have to say, um, I thought perhaps this was just a little bit of an easy, squeezy one for Billy because Joe DiMaggio really trips off the tongue as a lyric. Um, Easy to rhyme things with the O and DiMaggio. But as Josh explained to me, I now see Joe DiMaggio as more than just a great baseball player. He's actually somebody who personified America's good feeling about itself. I mean, America was going through this uh, uh, high self-esteem moment in its uh, career as a country. And I think for that reason, Billy was right to include Joe DiMaggio (laughs) because he's actually kind of summing up all of post-war America in the body of this one lanky baseball player.
1: And it's sort of pleasing, isn't it, that the rhyme that Billy finds for Joe DiMaggio is Marilyn Monroe.
0: Oh, you know A what? A bit of poetry from Billy there. A little, little bit of poetry and personification all in one.
1: So, so far in this podcast, we've had Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell. We've had some characters in there who are quite tragic, mm. like Doris was towards the end, certainly like Johnny Ray was. We've had some very strange people like Walter Winchell. Um, and Joe DiMaggio is sort of fitting with those because... He wasn't a happy man, despite all the things he achieved, like Johnny Ray. He's become an embodiment of a certain period of American life, like Doris Day. Yeah. But he lives on.
0: Um, One thing that a lot of these characters share, no matter whether they come from pop culture, entertainment, sports, politics, um, the thing that girds their loins, the thing that pushes them forward, that puts fire in the belly and all of those other collection of cliches (laughs) is the thing that kind of chews them up and spits them out. So um, I'm a little worried about just us because these examples are showing you that if you achieve your life's goals, um, it doesn't necessarily make you very happy. So maybe I need to like, I I shouldn't shoot for the stars. I need to just keep my head down because so far these characters don't end up in a very jolly way, do they?
1: Oh, so we don't want to be Joe DiMaggio.
0: We want to be Vince DiMaggio. We want to be Vince. We want to be the brother, the happy, the happy whistling brother. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I guess it's just what, you know, whatever gets your rocks off. And Joe was very invested in being uh, America's greatest ball player.
1: Yeah. So it's from one Joe this week and our Joe next week, Joe McCarthy.
0: Oh, oh, Okay, there'll, there'll be some darkness there. Some
1: darkness. I can't wait.
0: I can wait. I have to wait because it's next week. But I'm doing it with anticipation.
1: So Billy's told us we didn't start the fire, but who did spread the fire? Well, hopefully you are going to do that on behalf of me and Katie. Tell your friends, leave us a review on your podcast app. And maybe you want to share your own experiences, your own thoughts. Send us a message at fire at UK.
0: Crowd Network,
1: a place where you belong.
2: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol, about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone i talk to but i respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts
0: hello this is gary Chachot, welcoming you to check out the french history podcast our main show covers the history of france from the first humans until present Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
1: This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.